Welcome to Wilderness Podcast, a passion project about wilderness and wild places, with your host, Adam Bronstein. Hello, thanks so much for tuning in to another episode of Wilderness Podcast. If you're listening via web browser, I strongly encourage you to close out of that and to pick up your smartphone and head over to Apple iTunes, or if you're on a, an Android, Google Play. Uh, there's also many other apps out there like Stitcher or Spotify, and you can continue listening there to this episode. If you subscribe through your app, you'll also be notified of new releases when they come out, and you'll also gain access to past episodes. I hope you'll consider making a financial contribution in support of this program. You can make an ongoing contribution or a one-time donation by heading over to wildernesspodcast.com backslash support. There's also a support link right on the homepage. And individual contributions are really the only model that makes sense for this program. By staying independent, it gives me the ability to discuss some of the more difficult subject matter uh, surrounding wilderness issues. And if uh, I was taking foundation or corporate money, I might feel like I couldn't discuss some of these topics. So staying independent is vital uh, to my reporting. And I also want to make sure that I'm serving the wilderness movement in the best way that I can. So if you're able to make a contribution or you know somebody who can, uh, it really goes a long way. And I thank you very much if you have contributed or if you're thinking about doing so. In this episode, I speak with Christopher Ketchum, author of This Land, How Cowboys, Capitalism, and Corruption Are Ruining the American West. Chris is a frequent writer and contributor to periodicals and newspapers across the country on public lands and environmental issues. We speak about his new book, The Cowboy Mythos, Corruption in Federal Land Management Agencies, Cattle Ranching, and Grazing on Public Lands. We also talk about the pending Awahi Wilderness Bill, which is formerly known as the Malheur Community Empowerment for the Awahi Act and the influence of the cattle industry in the process. We also discuss the failures of the conservation groups that are at the table. I had a great chat with Chris, and I hope you enjoy the conversation. Thanks for tuning in. Chris, thanks so much for joining me today. I really appreciate you coming on the program. Yeah, thank you. And uh, so your book, This Land, has been very inspirational and the messages that that you're you're getting across are so important. You touch on all sorts of different facets of the way that our public lands are under attack, and um, all of these really important issues. So I'm so glad that you have tackled them, and your your book is is gaining wider and wider popularity. And I hope it's going viral. Um, so thank you so much for putting this piece out into the world. It's so important. Well, you're welcome. I don't know about viral, but it's out there. What inspired you to write this land? Well, um, you know, I'm an Easterner, born and raised, born and raised in Brooklyn, of all places, and you know, city kid. And I went west as uh, a boy with my father to visit the national parks, and then much later in my 30s, went west to live. <clears throat> and by then, I was an investigative journalist and also a budding naturalist and self-taught ecologist. And, uh, you know, I've, I spent a lot of time wandering around the backcountry and saw uh, a great deal of destruction and abuse and environmental degradation and management regimes on the part of primarily the Bureau of Land Management and the Forest Service that kowtowed to industry whether it be livestock grazing or timber or oil and gas drilling or gold and silver and molybdenum extraction or whatever hard rock mineral you can uh, name. Um, and so I thought to myself, man, the land is not being, <laughs> it's not being protected as it should be, and this needs to be exposed. And so, you know, I wrote series of articles over the course of a decade about public lands, abuse, violence against wildlife, violence against the land, violence overseen by the very people 
who the Americans, whom the American citizens have entrusted to protect the land, right? The regulators, the BLM and the Forest Service. And um, so in writing those articles, I began to see, yeah, well, there's, <laughs> there's definitely a pattern here and it's worthy of a book. And um, so I took my learning of 10 years and put it all together into this land. And what are some of the topics that you cover in the book? Well, um, there's three sections, three parts to the book. It's a long book. It's like 400 pages. Um, the three parts, the first part is called battle. The second part is called betrayal. And the third part is called resistance. And so in the first part, battle, I cover, um, I look at the, the um, struggle between the BLM and the Clive and Bundy clan, and then use that to tell the larger story about the domination of public lands by um, livestock interests and by, uh, broadly, the cowboy mythos. I also talk about the influence of the Mormon church on uh, public lands policy, Mormon ideology, the anti-fed ideology, anti-federal government ideology, and hatred of environmental regulation that characterizes um, Mormon thinking. And, and I talk about um, the history of the formation of the BLM, the history of its corruption um, as, uh, as livestock interests have undermined it. In the second part, um, betrayal, I talk about mostly about uh, wildlife, imperiled wildlife, um, many species of which have been listed under the ESA, and yet the ESA is not fully enforced. And um, in that part, I, I go hard after the Obama administration, to take one example, for failing to really enforce the ESA. And then from there, you know, I talk about wolves, bison, the bison of the imperiled bison of um, Yellowstone National Park. I talk about cougars and coyotes and the operations of a branch of the U.S. Department of Agriculture called um, Wildlife Services, which basically is a murderous, ecocidal uh, agency that slaughters millions, that has slaughtered millions of animals over the course of the 20th century and continues to do that today to serve the livestock industry uh, <coughs> um, and so on. So the betrayal is really about the betrayal of the wild things out there, the other than human inhabitants of the public lands who really need protection and aren't getting it. And then the third part of resistance is about um, the failure of putative green groups to really stand up for the values that they supposedly espouse and um, and the reason for that failure is um, that green groups have basically laid down in bed with capitalists, with the corporatocracy, with corporate money, corporate donors. And, um, well, there's no way you're going to take on the uh, forces that are destroying the wild, namely extractive industry, when you're you know, in bed with them. And so that's the book writ large. That's the, the arc of it. Okay, thanks for the summary. And uh, people can find this land on Amazon and also Audible. I have the Audible copy. I'm listening to it now for the second time. And uh, you do the narration. I always like when the authors read their books and narrate their books. And uh, you sounded really great. So you did a good job there. Thanks. Now let's, um, let's talk about public lands grazing. I think this is a great topic today. It also ties back into wilderness and uh, the ecologist George Werthner just published an article in Counterpunch where he, had, he identified public lands grazing as being the biggest single threat to the integrity, stability. Well, it's sort of like what, how Aldo Leopold might, might describe it. Um, the uh, wildlife and the ecology, um, pollution, uh, these are all the, the number one sources are, are coming from, from grazing. Uh, yeah, so this really source pollution, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So grazing really seems to be this 
central issue that we can point to for so many of our problems. Also, the displacement of wildlife, right? When you get tons of cows across these, these fragile landscapes, they displace elk, they displace deer. Um, and then, of course, uh, like you mentioned, uh, Department of Wildlife Services will come in to protect those uh, "Quote unquote," protect those cattle more and more, and and uh, further their extermination. So, I think public lands grazing is a big issue. And and you mentioned earlier, um, you know the uh, the big green groups, and this is an issue that they've really shied away from. Yeah, well, you know, it's not um, it's not a crowd pleaser. It's not a good fundraising case in point when you uh, when you're the when your fund when your green group fundraiser whatever you call it, campaign manager and you approach the public and say well we got to get the cows are the problem the public's like what what are you talking about <laughs> you know people uh, we are still laboring under the burden in this country of the cowboy myth we love cowboys we think of livestock on the open range of the west as uh, a tradition that is um, never to be changed. It is sacred. And for the most part, the American people don't understand the ecological devastation that results from livestock grazing on the public lands of the West. They don't understand that this is an invasive bovine from Europe, ill-adapted to arid land to the arid lands. And the arid land uh, communities, biotic communities, are certainly ill-adapted to the presence of the invasive bovine. So we're talking about denudation of the landscape, destruction of the native uh, flora, um, erosion, soil loss, um, runoff, um, and ultimately desertification that results from all those millions of cows overgrazing the arid lands of the West. So that's kind of a complex, right, to lay out before the public, um, whereas a drilling derrick is viscerally visual, you know, and you understand, okay, they are drilling into Mother Earth and plundering her riches um, and poisoning the water and the air. So that's much, e that's much easier to sell right, to the public to raise funds if you're the Nature Conservancy or the Wilderness Society or et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, Werthner is absolutely right. The number one problem facing the public lands, facing or the number one factor driving environmental degradation on the public lands is grazing. Absolutely. Yeah, and uh, you know we probably don't hear about it because the big greens don't speak up. And You've got groups like the Center for Biological Diversity and Western Watersheds Project and Wilderness Watch. You know, these are some of the smaller, uh, I guess, grassroots groups, and, and they're sounding the horn. Um, but they just don't have the funds and the reach that uh, the big green groups do. So I don't know really how we can, how we can get there until uh, they start accepting the science. You know, some of these ecologists are talking about wanting to get back to a 50% um, setting aside 50% of the land uh, on the earth for biodiversity to ensure our own survival, let alone that of the natural world, which we most certainly have a, 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 a duty to protect. Mm. The 50% set-aside plan is from uh, E.O. Wilson, you know, the, the doyen of conservation biologists in the United States. Uh, I think it's a great idea. I mentioned it in my book in the final chapter. That, yeah, they, and the public lands are the perfect place to institute setting aside 50%, uh, roughly 50% of, you know, the lower 48 for, um, as a wildlife reserve, as a biotic, as a, as a biotic redoubt against um, the metastatic advance of industrial civilization. So, and yeah, well, I mean, that's a, that's a great idea, but is it politically feasible? No. Of course not. And certainly made totally infeasible if the very parties that are supposed to be standing up for biotic communities and the other than human, namely the green groups, 
um, are themselves selling out to industry through through these collaborative processes. And so, in the in the case of grazing, yes, you see um, green groups regularly collapsing before the pressure brought by livestock interests, um, say in wilderness areas, so that grazing is allowed to continue in those wilderness areas rather than than um, than it being barred. Um, wilderness wilderness areas are supposed to be places that are um, that maintain some semblance of natural order, untrammeled, as the you know the, that's the the word that's used in the legislation, the 1964 Wilderness Act, untrammeled by Homo sapiens. And you know, to trammel is very specific. It means to hobble or to to make unfree. Um, well, what what do you think happens when you release uh, hordes of cattle into a wilderness area? Well, you're making that you're trammeling that wilderness, and yet green groups shrug and say, "Well, it's wilderness with some cows in it." <laughs> so, I don't know, man. The situation's pretty grim, pretty dark. It, yeah. it, uh, I think we just need we, I, what we need is we need an uprising by the citizens of the United States against this travesty. That's what we need. It it amazes me every time the amount of cow shit that I find in wilderness areas, especially in Idaho and Wyoming. Uh, oh yeah, there's some places you can't even set up a tent without sleeping in cow shit. And, I know. Man. Um, I know. Yeah, I've slept and, in cow. I know cow feces intimately. <laughs> Both the liquid kind, the fresh, gooey liquid kind, and the dried out, dust blowing kind that gets in your eyes. Yeah, tasty. Yeah, that's the worst. And then when it when it dries and it gets like a, a foot deep, and you're walking through it, and it just blows up in the air and gets in your tent yeah, and yeah, all you your dust. Little dust devils, little plumes, little plumes in your ears and your eyes and your and your on your tongue. The feces, the micro you know, micro dust of feces settling on your tongue. That's that's a wilderness for you. Yeah, exactly. Getting into your dinner. Yeah, and this yeah. is uh, yeah. Let's let's make sure people hear this um, properly. And um, yeah, there are cows in wilderness. So a lot of folks might not have cows in their local wilderness. Um, but this is happening all across the country, especially in the Rocky Mountain regions. And in fact, it was one of the concessions to get the Wilderness Act passed in 1964. We probably wouldn't even have the Wilderness Act if it wasn't for uh, the, the concession to allow continued grazing. So pre-existing grazing rights must be grandfathered in order to pass the Wilderness Act. So the cattle industry has been so powerful and influential um, in our public lands. And, uh, yeah, I mean, our wilderness areas just uh, untrammeled by man. Well, uh, cows are man. Yeah, we're not, uh, we're not the ones crapping and walking everywhere, but they certainly are our cows. So it's very, very oxymoronic. Mm, yeah. Yeah, well, that, <coughs> that concession in the 1964 Wilderness Act was, I believe, a grievous error, but you're correct to remark that the the act would not have passed the Western Caucus, it just simply would have it would have failed, um, because of course the because of the outsized influence of of livestock on Western lawmakers. So, still the, the that um, that fine print in the Wilderness Act, as you correctly observe, stated that existing existing grazing rights, quote-unquote. They're not rights, they're privileges. Grazing privilege, existing grazing privileges um, in wilderness would be maintained. But now you have instances where grazing is being extended into wilderness areas or facilitated uh, in newly designated wilderness areas. Well, that's not right. It's not what we should be doing. And that's what appears to be happening with the Malheur Community Empowerment for the Owahis Act. And we'll get to that here in a little bit. Because some of the language in the summary just, um, it's it's pretty unbelievable. And it just kind of ties everything together. But um, let's talk about, <clears throat> let's talk about the history of cattle ranching on the West. Can you, can you give us a little background? Well, 
the livestock industry really gets its start after the Civil War, um, when the embargo on the Texas cattle industry um, is dropped after the cessation of hostilities in 1865, and um, suddenly you have massive numbers of cattle moving north across the plains, the southern plains and the high plains, and into the Colorado, into the Rocky Mountain country, seeking both both forage on public lands for the most part, and access to um, eastern markets. And that access, of course, was provided by transcontinental railroads newly blazed across the uh, continent. And at the same time, you have um, genocidal assault on Native Americans and on the last resistors of the Plains tribes by the Army of the West. And uh, part of the grand strategy of the Army of the West uh, is to encourage the decimation uh, the near extinction of bison on the plains and everywhere the bison could be found because the plains tribes depended on bison for their survival. And the continuing supply of bison, for want of another phrase, supply, the continuing availability of bison allowed the plains tribes to, um, to continue to mount their resistance to the white invaders. So what you had then is a nexus of all these different forces, the destruction of Native Americans, destruction of bison, the, um, the building of the Transcontinental Railroad, the, um, the, the end of the Civil War that opens up Texas beef to markets in the north, and all this comes together, and you have the, founding, the foundations of what will soon become, within, by 1880, you know, a very powerful public lands grazing industry. And so that's how it got its start. Those buffalo were replaced with, with cows. And what does that's that right. industry look like today? What does the what does the cattle industry look like today on public lands in the West? Well, it's actually uh, in terms of the total production of beef in this country, it's uh, it's uh, a negligible force. Um, something like an estimated two percent of all beef produced in this country gets forage from the public lands. So, put that another way, if we were to end all public lands grazing today, it would barely affect the price of your steak if steak is your preference. It would, it would change nothing, except that it would liberate the public lands from this oppressive, ecologically devastating force of overgrazing. And all of the destruction of the pinion juniper and... <clears throat> the sagebrush and the ponderosa. Um, well, I mean that all that all goes with the program, man. I mean, it's a, yeah. it's a broad it's a broad program that involves yes, pinion juniper clearing, uh, sagebrush vegetation treatments, um, uh, um, all kinds of vegetation treatments to replace native um, native forage with um, with um, uh, invasive forage. Um, or non-native forage, such as kochia or um, crested wheatgrass. So, I mean, and then, then beyond that, there's, there's the program of wildlife services. It slaughters predators like coyotes and wolves and bears and cougars and on and on and on. Yeah, so, it, so you ask, what, is the public, what does the public lands livestock industry look like today? Well, it is highly subsidized by government to the tune by one estimate of a billion dollars a year. It produces almost nothing in terms of actual economic value, um, and it is incredibly destructive. So that's the picture. How does the leasing process work? You made a great point where it's not a right, it's a privilege, and uh, much like a driver's license, I suppose. And um, the industry certainly treats it like a right, but how how does the leasing process work? If I'm a rancher... Or part of a, or let's say I'm a, co- a conglomerate a corporation, and, and I want uh, I want to start leasing my or uh, grazing my cows on public lands. How does this process work? Well, you need to own a base property that um, that that has attached to it um, a, a leasing privilege. So you can buy a small, you can buy a farm, you know, buy a ranch. Let's say a, a privately deeded ranch of 200 acres or some such. 
that 200-acre ranch could have attached to it uh, the quote-unquote rights to, to run cattle on, let's say, 60,000 acres of public land, whether BLM or Forest Service. So you first have to purchase that base property or own that base property. And, um, and then it just, it just boom, it's just like clockwork. You know, you get the, get, uh, pay your, your, uh, your lease fees, and the lease fee is incredibly low. It's like $1.40 or something. It fluctuates between like $1.30 and $1.50 per cow-calf pair. That's how it's measured as a cow-calf pair, otherwise known as an AUM or animal unit month. And, um, and the whole thing is greased, man. You get the, you know, it's, it's greased to, to the, the process of leasing is greased to occur as quickly and easily as possible to get the cows out there and, um, get them eating our grass. And what's the process for renewing leases? Well, you're, you're supposed to do, <laughs> I mean, in some cases you're supposed to do environmental impact statements via, the um, the 1970 law called NEPA, the National Environmental Policy Act, but those are, I mean, the, the BLM Forest Service don't follow the law, so they don't do the environmental assessments or the more rigorous environmental impact statements as mandated under NEPA when they uh, when they renew the leases. So the landscape can be you know pounded to hell, the wildlife decimated. Um, the streams polluted, the soil eroding, and the agencies just shrug and say, all right, let's renew your lease. We don't give a shit. At least that's the impression I get. They don't care. All they care is to serve their master, the the cowboy. Uh, do you know any cases of uh, leases being denied? You know, very few. Yes, I've heard of them, few and far between. But for the most part, they're almost never denied. I think there have been some instances where uh, green groups like Western Watersheds Project have intervened and forced the hand of the agencies, whether it be the Forest Service or the BLM, to not renew um, a grazing permit. But I don't have any specific uh, details on that. I, you know, you could ask Western Watershed Pro- Watershed Projects or ask uh, ask um, George Werthner. He's the real yeah. expert in grazing in the West. Yeah, George is just a wealth of knowledge. He pumps out so many articles, and he's uh, so the uh, the Forest Service, BLM, and even the National Park Service. Some people don't realize that there's uh, it's actually leasing for cattle in our Park Service lands, Point Reyes in California, uh, and yeah, in Capitol Reef National Park in Utah. Yeah, Capitol Reef, and then, um, of course, some of our monuments as well. But uh, you mentioned that uh, most of the ecological impacts and environmental impacts are disregarded, and they're not necessarily taken into account under any sort of NEPA or an environmental review process. Um, it's really it's really that bad, huh? Oh, yeah. Yeah, this is... Uh this is a regime, a cattle regime, that operates largely with impunity and oftentimes in direct violation, flagrant violation of federal law. But those violations, mind you, are aided and abetted by the regulatory agencies. And that, that's why, you know, that's why I, I, in my book I say how corruption is ruining the American West, because it is corruption. It's the corruption of our government that is allowing this to happen. How does the mythos of the cowboy and the struggling rancher play into the dominant cultural narrative? Well, you know, the whole idea that begins with um, Teddy Roosevelt writing about his experience as a rancher in the 1880s in um, North Dakota. The, the, you know, Teddy writes about this manly, virile, um, independent, self-reliant, venturesome, half-wild character called the cowboy, right? And it's, uh, uh, it's a, the cowboy for Teddy Roosevelt <clears throat> represents freedom, um, power, virility. Um, the cowboys are also, of course, handsome and physically courageous, bold in action, um, yeah, you know, they're just they're like these romantic figures, right? And so we still 
you know, the American public has been fed for 150 years a lot of slop about the cowboy. When in fact, you know, as Lynn Jacobs writes in his, his amazing book, The, the um, Waste of the West, uh, let me see if I can find the quote from Lynn Jacobs about what cowboys really were. They were my, I'm just going to read a little section of my book. They were migrant workers. This is me writing. Seasonally employed, badly paid, ill-treated, the very picture of malnutrition, living outdoors in miserable conditions, hurting big, dumb, easily spooked, dangerous animals across inhospitable land. Lynn Jacobs wrote in Waste of the West, He was a scraggly, dirty man with tattered, ill-fitting clothes and an unmistakable smell. His poor sanitary habits, inadequate diet, alcoholic tendencies, and excessive time in the saddle made him weak and sickly. When not doing mundane ranching chores, the cowboy spent his time drinking and smoking, playing cards, and generally doing little one could call exciting, heroic, or romantic. In the 1880s, said Jacobs, America was no more impressed by a cowboy than by a railroad employee or shopkeeper. So the, the myth has, um, the myth very, over, very quickly overtook that reality of you know, a, mal, a malnourished seasonal migrant worker. That's what the cowboy was. But no, today he's the Marlboro Man. Remember, I mean, we still, still think of him as the Marlboro Man. So that play, I'm telling you, that, that is powerful stuff, man. It's powerful stuff that, that goes deep into the, into the American psyche. This idea of, of riding out onto the range where liberty is infinite. But of course, that liberty is all premised on violent domination of nature and of the landscape. It's called virility. It's called uh, the, uh, the virile expression of um, of the masculine pioneer. It's all a bunch uh, of crap. It's so, <laughs> but, you know, it is so funny. It's like a cosplay thing, or it's just it, it is. Uh, it is almost amusing. Sure. It, it's cosplay. It is and almost I, it, amusing. Everyone, it's really amusing yeah. to me, man. All right, so I'm an Easterner, right? And I go, I go west. And I meet a lot of other Easterners who've gone west and moved there. And holy mackerel, do they? Uh, the, the, the Easterners are the worst of the cosplayers. Let me tell you, they go west a couple years, a couple years passes, they're wearing their high-heeled boots, they got the belt buckles, a cowboy hat, they picked up the whole garb. Even their accents change, man. It's like, <laughs> yeah. like there was nothing there in the first place. There was just a vacuum waiting to be filled by the myth. I've yeah. seen hey, I'm Joe many- from Jersey. <laughs> Joe from Jersey. Hey. No, it's not really Joe from Jersey. It's more often I've found wealthy, wealthy people who go west and then oftentimes become hobby ranchers and then become part of the problem because they're in, they themselves are invested in um, public lands permits. And so they adopt the garb and the attitude of the rancher when, in fact, all their wealth comes from investment on in Wall Street, for example. So it's just, again, cosplay is exactly right. And, of course, cosplay is a bunch of horse shit. It's like cowboys and Indians, like a bunch of kids playing out in the, in the field. Five-year-old that's playing dress-up. These are, you know, a bunch of dress-up queens in their blouses. Yeah, okay. Herding cattle. <laughs> Herding cattle purchased by, by selling, you know, stock that Grandpa bought in Apple in 1980. <laughs> it's just like, you know. You got to reenact the Wild West, right? It's sort of a, a, a dream, a childhood dream come true. Uh huh. In fact, in rage, to me, it's kind of enraging to see the, 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 just to see people who should know better playing into it. You know, part of the myth tells us that the the splendor, the vastness, the openness of the land, um, is um, that part of that beauty is the presence of cows and range riders and cowboys you see so so that the west with all its beauty includes that very destructive for, for those people who are taken in by the cowboy myth the west includes in its beauty the the um the rough riding cowboy on the range and when we're destroying these ecosystems and running all these animals out it's uh it's very hard to see these places as they once were and um you know then the the myth 
continues and perpetuates. Right. You know, um, where, where are you based? Livingston? No, I'm in Bend, Oregon. In Bend, Oregon. Okay, I'm sorry. Well, um, you were just over in Paradise Valley, right? With I was, yeah. But Paradise Valley is a perfect example of what we we're talking about here in terms of the um, the rich hobbyist rancher. Uh, throughout Paradise Valley, there are very wealthy people who are pretending to be cowboys. I don't want to name them. I'm not going to bother naming them. But you know, it's just like they're just bullshitters. They got all their money from somewhere else, and now are playing playing cowboy and cowgirl. This is common in the West, especially in the Rocky Mountains, in the Northern Rocky Mountains. Yeah, Paradise Valley is a perfect example of that for sure. And you can't uh, you can't buy a ranch for for cheap. So <clears throat> you have to you have to have that big Eastern money or West Coast money um, to be able to buy these well, ranches. No, you can- you can buy ranches for cheap um, in areas that are not sought after by in the amenities economy. I mean, the Northern Rocky Mountains, Paradise Valley, is sought after because it's because it's adjacent to Yellowstone National Park, because it's a, it's um, um, uh, it's a temperate zone in a very cold climate. Generally, um, it's um, it's it's immense. It's beautiful. Um, therefore, real estate prices are high. You can buy a, a crappy old ranch in uh, the middle of southern Utah, desert country in like West Utah, for quite cheap. So it's, it's, the, it's the desire to live in a beautiful place, right, while also dressing up as a cowboy. Yeah, that's a good point of distinction. That fantasy costs money. That particular fantasy, the one played out in a place like Paradise Valley, costs a lot of money. And, and all over Greater Yellowstone, uh, the, the real estate is just going up through the roof. But yes, you are correct. There are places in this country that are quite rural and don't have the amenity economies or the outdoor recreation economies around them where you still can buy a ranch. And uh, you had a great interview with uh, Derek Jensen. Uh, you talked about predator control and... Um, also mentioned that the average rancher isn't who you think he is. It's uh, these uh, corporate conglomerates uh, make up most of the cattle production uh, that are involved with public lands grazing. Is that accurate? Yeah, it's something like uh, 50% of all cattle permits are owned by less than 10% of of livestock operators. And most of those, yeah, are either rich people uh, corporations seeking tax write-offs, uh, or groups like, well, municipal organizations like the Southern Nevada Water, Water Authority, capturing livestock permits in order to get the water privileges that go with the permits, so they can con- continue to feed the um, the growth of Hellhole Las Vegas. And you got yeah, you have with Walt, the Walton family of Walmart fame. Um, they own lots of cattle. Ted Turner owns a lot of cattle permit, has a lot of cattle permits on public lands, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, it's not the the majority of permittees are not the hard scrabble ranching clan. You know, it's uh, basically it's an industry, sort of like the American economy, dominated by, I guess you call them one percenters, elites. But elites, no, of course, masquerading, masquerading again. We're coming back to the same thing: elites masquerading and cowboy garb. Right. Let's let's touch a little bit here on the Malheur Community Empowerment for the Owyhee Act. So this is a new pending wilderness bill, and the cattle industry most definitely has influence on this process. And I will be talking with Katie Fight. Uh, she's coming on the program next week. So I love Katie. She's a friend of mine and a hero to me. And she's like, she's one of the great, great activists on the public lands who fears nothing. Excellent. Yeah, I can't wait to talk to her. And I'm still learning about this act. But let me read this description. This is from Ron Wyden, Democratic senator for Oregon. Mm-hmm. The Malheur Community Empowerment Act for the Yawahis 
objectives are to support and grow local communities and economies, protect the cultural resources and the Western traditions for which the federal land is known to maintain grazing on federal land. This is right out of the summary. To protect and enhance the cultural, ecological, and economic needs of the Burns Paiute tribe, to maintain and enhance the latest available science-based adaptive management of the federal land, to prevent invasive species encroachment, and large fires through management practices that that focus on restoration of the ecosystem. To, I can't even get through this without laughing. To ensure the conservation and improved management of the ecological, social, economic, environmental, blah, 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 blah. Um, so Adam, what's, what's wrong with that, man? <laughs> well, if we want to protect all of these things, then we can't be doing it with, with cows there. Um, cows spread invasive species like nobody's business. Cheatgrass. We want fires. Let's bring in more cheatgrass. If we want... To restore the ecosystems, well, we can't have cows uh, destroying the soil. And uh, as you mentioned, all of the, uh, the practices that, that go along in, in support of the, the grazing industry. This is just unbelievable. It's a giveaway to the cattle industry. And um, this is not uh, how wilderness protection should be done. And I'll, I'll get a little bit more into, well, I'll, I'll read about the additions to proposed wilderness, but... Um, yeah, I mean, cattle cattle have played no part in, in all of these points that they're making. Or rather, cattle, the presence of cattle in that landscape will be detrimental to every one of the, of the putative intentions in the bill, right? Restoration, eco, ecological health, et cetera, et cetera. But remember, the primary motivation there is not ecological health. It's not restoration. It's maintaining the way of life. That's what that is. Just the bill is a massive subsidy, as you remark on for uh, for for public lands grazing and, and they yet say it right in there within, and, then it, and yet it contains within it some provisions for wilderness areas correct correct me if i'm wrong um yes that um have that have served as the bait for green groups to support this hard legislation and so you got groups like i mean who are the backers there behind the malier act Community Improvement Act. I don't have them all in front of me, but um, Pew Charitable, Charitable Trust is at the table, and, and this is a conservation collaborative. Uh, the mm-hmm. Wilderness Society, the Oregon Natural Desert Association, and there's a, I think there's a cattle industry group at the table. Uh, I, I don't have the full list in front of me, but I but I do remember uh, Pew, Onda, and TWS are at hmm. the table. And probably the Nature Conservancy, too. Uh it's very possible. The Nature Conservancy was one of the pivotal players in drafting the Hawaii Initiative, which covered the Hawaii country in Idaho. Um, and that was passed in 2009 as part of the public lands omnibus bill that uh, Obama signed. So, yeah, so you got all these green groups supporting a complete piece of crap bill. It's really disgusting. <laughs> and the public, the public is duped into thinking that the the best conservation interests of these lands are being considered because you have these environmental and green groups at the table. But what's so ironic is that they can, um, you know, support this sort of bill, knowing the science behind cattle grazing and what it does. Uh, so Malheur County hosts 4.5 million acres of federal land. Under this bill, there are 1.1 million acres of proposed wilderness. In addition, 1.1 million acres of current wilderness study areas and lands with wilderness characteristics, this is a, a similar designation by the BLM, will become managed for multiple uses under the current and developing BLM Vale District Resource Management Plan. So, uh, we have wilderness, we have grazing on that wilderness, and we have the release of 1.1 million acres of some of our best wild country for multiple use. What does multiple use mean? Well, it means extraction. It means energy production. It means grazing. It means timbering. It means road building. Uh, So we're giving up 1.1 million acres of prime wild habitat. 
Right, but the exchange isn't the isn't the the, the, the quid pro quo seemingly that um, that for the loss of those 1.1 million acres, the green groups can claim up oh, where we're protecting what, what's the figure a million one million yeah, acres of, of wilderness. They're both they're both 1.1 yeah 1.1 acres of new wilderness 1.1 million acres of um, giveaway loss says right well. You know, the interesting thing about that bill as well is that it um, it will massively subsidize more recreation mm-hmm. in, the, in the area. And so those wilderness areas are going to be hammered by, um, by recreationists, by visita- human visitation, people in cars, basically. Um, and that's, that's a problem. Uh, it is a problem. A real problem. Yeah. Recreation wildlife. is not conservation. Um, when you when you consider wildlife, absolutely, it drives them out. Uh, the mm-hmm. impacts are well known, and they're, uh, the big green groups are very adamant at promoting recreation um, because the outdoor industry funds a lot of their uh, their initiatives. But also, uh, it seems that people really do equate wilderness with recreation and um, and getting out there and all the gear associated around that. It's a big industry. I have tough, un-American to go out into the wild without a lot of stuff. Yeah, well, man, you don't need to be talking to me. You've, <laughs> you've, got, it all, you've got it all figured out, Adam. It's exactly right. I don't right. have anything. I don't have anything figured out. <laughs> it's still well, happening the right out tra- there. I think you're on the right track. Um, yeah, because everything you're saying is correct. 100% correct. Oh, it's a crazy time we live in here. And, uh, you know, our public lands are supposed to be the ultimate social experiment, right? They should be the antithesis of capitalism run amok. And uh, it's it's just becoming harder and harder to swallow the pill. Well, and uh, so d- just remember that the view, the fundamentalist view expressed um, by folks like Wyden by the green groups who are working with Wadden, by the livestock operators who have come together with the green groups and with Wadden to produce this bill. They have a fundamentalist view of the natural world. That fundamentalist view is that um, it is all there to serve the one sacred, godlike species, Homo sapiens. Right? Mm. So that's why you have the green groups sitting there saying, well, if... Grazing will help out the cattlemen. The wil- the wilderness will. We can have more people in there recreating. It's good for the economy. It's also good for the economy. But nowhere, nowhere, is there a thought for the other than human for the for the the living inhabitants who call that place home. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's yep. too, you know, and, and so. But that's just not part of the thinking. No, and that needs and to I change. It, I call it fundamentalist because it is fundamental to to the to the anthropocentric view of things. We are we are the the flying center of the world, and all else bows before our interests. Our lives are enriched by the presence of these other species, and you made mention to this in this land. I I remember. Just having the grizzly bear and and the wolves and the cougars and the wolverines, just having these uh, having these species on the landscape uh, heightens our own existence. So, yes, it is the fundamentalist view that Homo sapiens are number one. But I don't think it even matters whether it heightens or enriches our existence. I think those animals just have a right to exist, regardless of what they do for us. Absolutely. Absolutely. But if you want to look at it from that fundamentalist view, I think the argument can be made that they do enrich our experience as well. But I absolutely agree that they have, they should have their own rights. Yeah. Well, what other, uh, what other projects do you have in the works, Chris? I'm interested to see what you've got coming on next. You don't have to, uh, you don't have to give out any secrets, but maybe you could just mention sort of what you're thinking of and working on. Uh, well, I'm working on a piece for Harper's about the adventure capitalist industry. That is the industrial recreation complex and how it warps public lands policy and how it is leading, in fact, to um, 
a de facto privatization of public lands. So that's going to be a fun piece when it comes out. I'm working on a piece about um, the you know, magazine article, another magazine article about uh, how uh, green groups in the Northeast are supporting logging of state public lands, particularly in Massachusetts, and how there's zero scientific, well, very little scientific justification for these positions. And what I found is that a lot of these green groups, like, for example, Massachusetts Audubon, um, are in bed with timber corporations. <laughs> and, <clears throat> okay, so again, more corruption. So those are two of the things I'm working on. I'd like to see a preservation collaborative. So we've got the conservation collaborative. So let's just call that the wise use, multiple use. Uh, I want to see preservation collaboratives. Not going to get them in this society. I want to see the grassroots groups coming together in these areas when these new bills and forest plans come out and, and form these. I want to see a new, a new collaborative coming out of this. There's no money in preservation. That's why it isn't done. You're absolutely right. <laughs> well, there you go. That's, that's how things work. In our, sick, in our sick, demented society, that's how things work. What are you going to do? It's so true. Uh, yeah, back to Derek Jensen. I'm paraphrasing here, but he says capitalism is the process of turning the living into the dead. So uh, I don't know how we turn that around. Turning the living into a dollar sign, and then they're dead. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. 2.0, version 2.0. Chris, thanks for your time. And again, I encourage all my listeners to pick up a copy of This Land and I don't remember the subtitle, but it's, was it how capitalism... How is capitalism and corruption are ruining the American West? Thank you. Yeah, it's a uh, pivotal book. It could not have come out at a better time. And please pick up a copy and tell your friends to, uh, to have a listen or to, to, read, uh, to read this book. So it's a great contribution to the wilderness and the environmental movement, Chris. And I thank you very much for, for the work that you do. Yeah, well, thanks for having me on, man. Thanks for listening to this episode of Wilderness Podcast. You can find us online at wildernesspodcast.com. Don't forget to subscribe through your podcasting app. If you'd like to support this podcast, please visit wildernesspodcast.com backslash support. Thanks for listening.